You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi. This is Tanya. You're deep in uh, month of the pandemic, I guess we are now. And you are listening to my podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network. You can't say that. Today, this is part two of... Um, a podcast that began with my guest, New York Times bestselling author, Cynthia Bond, author of Ruby. And now I'm going to be speaking with two of my favorite women, some of the most talented women I know, my colleagues, Frankie Cox, who is a singer, songwriter, educational therapist, writer, and also Chaika Omuwali, filmmaker of Solace, available on Amazon. And, uh, Join me in welcoming Frankie Cox and Chaika Omawali. Hi, ladies. Hey, Tanya. Hi, Tanya. Hey. So um, I want to start by saying, talking about this um, Blackbird Writers Collective that we are a part of, which is uh, Black women writers. And, you know, for me, my whole life, I have really never had many Black friends because Maybe you all have had the same thing. If you're of a certain kind of educational level or interested in reading and writing and, and speak in a certain way, they put you in the class with all the white kids. Was that you guys' experience? I'll let you go first, Frankie. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I, that, that it, it worked out that way. Um <laughs> It worked out that way. I don't think that it was an intentional, like separate her from them, but it was based on what was available in the community. Um, this child was bored and could do other things. So, um, so that, that was definitely a, a big experience of um, here's an opportunity um, to learn more, but, what was academically presented wasn't met with, um, by the way, you're going to, it's going to be very different. And I know you grew up all um, over the world. Yeah. I was about to say for me, it wasn't about where anybody put me in class, but just when I, I grew up in, um, 
in Jamaica and Africa and Asia, the Middle East, and then and in England and the U.S. And so I always went to private schools. And for the most part, even in Jamaica, which is like a majority black country, my private school, my Catholic school there had mostly what we call uptown Jamaicans. But anyway, in Jamaica, there's not a sense the way it is in the U.S. here where there's like white people. It's it's um, it's colorism or different shades and then class. But definitely I grew up with uh, a lot of white friends, but I'm proud to say I also have always had, I've always had black female friends. Um, maybe not when I was in Thailand, but other than Thailand, every country, yeah, every country I had like definitely a black best friend and probably a South Asian best friend as well. <laughs> yeah, this is a new thing for me and I love it so <laughs> I just want to log onto our right room, just to see your faces and to like go, yes, there are other people that see the world the way I see it. Oh my God, I've just been gaslit my whole life. <laughs> I know it's terrible. It's terrible that we, that, that it's like such a, well, let me say in the other way, I think it's beautiful that when black women realize that we need other black women, that it's this, it's just this feeling that is that other black women can understand. It's like a, a yes in capital letters. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Chico, I, I got to see your beautiful film, um, <laughs> Solus, which is a short film. And then there's a feature film and both of them are available on, um, on Amazon. And, yes. um, what, what was the inspiration? I mean, how did you become a filmmaker after being a child of a diplomat traveling the world? How did you get to filmmaking? <laughs> I, well, I wanted to be an actress first and then, I, because of racism <laughs> and ignorance, I was like, I'm going to be a director instead. But I really, uh, when I moved to New York when I was 16, I really wanted to be an actor. And then I was like, who's going to hire me? Because I'm dark skinned and I've got a big nose and I'm, you know, I had, like body issues and I'm fat. I'm never going to be able to like practice my art. So you know what? I'm going to be a director instead because that at least I have more control. And, and so when I was in college at Columbia, I was doing film studies and really just fell in love with all the ways in which you craft film. And thankfully I was ignorant and didn't realize that being a black female director was also really hard. <laughs> and so in, in my twenties, the, the, I was definitely blissed out by like not knowing all of the structural obstacles and unfortunately like internalized a lot of them. But that's, that's where my love of film started uh, of like making films was when I was in college. And Solace is my sort of my cinematic love letter to my little girl when I was growing up and having like food issues, but not realizing there were food issues and not realizing I had body issues. Cause the only thing about eating disorders that I knew of was anorexia. And to me that meant you had to be skinny or bulimia. And to me that meant you had to throw up. So I didn't know about like exercising. I didn't know about laxatives. I didn't know which are all the things like I did to try and purge. So I made this film for, for myself and then for any other black girl, black woman. And then it sort of expands out of that, you know, folks who didn't think that they could possibly have an issue, but did have an issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Frankie, I knew you were a singer and a songwriter, but I was also fascinated by the fact that you were this educational therapist. I didn't know this about you. You want to share something about the, the, I mean, I know you're so creative. I love your writing. What do you want to share about your, 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 your art or your work? 
Um, so I'll, I'll share about the educational therapy. Um, I happened on it by chance, helping a friend. Um, I had a relationship just as a, as a family friend with her, with, with her daughter. And, um, and it was a positive relationship. It wasn't like, you know, you know, warm and, and fuzzy, but it was a positive relationship. And she was having some issues in school that I didn't know what the root was. And one day, um, her mother approached me and said, listen, we, I need some help. This is what's going on. And, uh, you know, she's in a situation where she may not be able to, you know, this is her last straw in this private, they've exhausted every resource that they have. You seem to have a connection with her. Would you be willing to try it out? I said, sure. I'll, I'll just, you know, be a shadow with this child. And how old was the child? uh, She was, uh, like a, I don't know, like 11, 11 or 12 year old. Um, and the, response, the the response with her, her time with me, it didn't become a soft and fuzzy experience at all, but her, her experience in the classroom setting was beyond anything else that they had tried with, you know, trained specialists. And, um, from that experience, I went to, um, and throughout, uh, I've worked for years as a nanny pursuing, um, the arts. I was a dancer for many years. I came to Los Angeles to be to be a, a dan- to be a fly girl, and um, I supplemented. I you know I worked as a nanny, and I always found kids who at the time they hadn't yet. You know they were there was like ADHD, but it wasn't quite a thing yet. It wasn't like we're gonna instantly medicate kids. I always found that I was in the periphery of these children, and I was able to connect in a way that into to humanity and to a feeling that was able to you know that they they just felt a little bit calmer with me. Um, so in doing. Over the years, I've, when I found myself in this situation with this family, um, the the therapist that was that was sort of her therapist was mentoring me and said, "Why don't you consider? I, I have another family that could really use some help. Why don't you consider working with them?" And from them, I worked with another family, and from them, I worked with another family. Now I'm going back to school um, to pursue a degree in psychology so that I can do this work because I think that so many children are expected. They have really high expectations to process information that's coming at them in so many ways right now. Every, you know, kids get phones at very early ages and they're expected to, to process all of this uh, information and a lot of the information is really, really heavy right now. They know things that are are that we know about the state of affairs, about the world, about people being, you know, losing their lives on screens. These kids know about this, and they're expected to process that in a, in a way that like their frontal cortex isn't even developed, like physiologically, they cannot do it. And so if I can be of service to, I'm a parent, I have two growing boys. I know that they struggle with just regulating, you know, who gets the ball and, 
you know, on a, on a, on a, you know, and I forgot to turn in my homework the way that they told me to do it in the, you know, because everything's distance learning. Anyway, there's a, okay, go on and on, but I, I am, I'm passionate about the work. I feel like it chose me. It's not easy work and, um, but it, it chose me and I am, I'm, I'm grateful that I, that, that, that might be an option for me. I think that our, that the children, if there is any future, it's obviously theirs. And if we can help them to, to, um, have more tools, um, to recognize their own strengths and talents and to be whole as they move through and try to clean up our messes. I'm on board to do that. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So I'm, you know, not so much the host facilitator here as much as we're having a conversation about an experience we shared. And I'm pretty open and frank on my, my show. It's called You Can't Say That, the show where you can. <laughs> I wanted to talk about something that's actually just coming up for me, as we move into this conversation, um, I am aware that I introed you all and I introed um, Cynthia in a way that I've not really ever introed anybody. And and I was looking at myself and going, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And it was like, oh, there is some part of me that felt I needed to validate you as uh, human beings in the world before I share this uh, traumatic experience, because I guess I'm just so accustomed to my experiences as a black woman being invalidated that in the way that I, I spoke with Cynthia about watching her plead her humanity to those police officers, I unconsciously was trying to set up you know, your humanity before we go into this story. So I, I wanted to share that about, you know, the space that I find myself in that I wasn't aware that I'd be in. Wasn't planned that way. Yeah. You know, when you say that, it, what it reminds me of <clears throat> is, uh, I don't remember how long ago, maybe it was like 10 years ago or something. I was arrested for driving with uh, a suspended license because I was, didn't have money to pay a cell phone. This was in New York. Uh, didn't know, didn't have money to pay a ticket that I got for talking uh, on the phone in the car. And I was uh, driving back up to Harlem with an ex-girlfriend and I got pulled over and they asked me to step out the car and I thought nothing of it until they handcuffed me. And then I remember this is like the craziest thing that went through my head. I was like, 
I'm not the kind of, in my head, I didn't say anything out loud. I'm not the kind of person that's supposed to be arrested. This isn't supposed to be happening to somebody like me. I think that's like the phrase, <laughs> that's the phrase that was in my head. And this is before I had my nigga wake up moment in, in 2016. And, and I'm using that's a Paul Mooney joke somebody told me about that every black person will have their nigga wake up moment. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I was a full on Uncle Tom before. Like I did African American studies. Like my parents are Pan African. You know, even though, you know, I grew up as a diplomat's kid, like my father was comrades with Walter Rodney, who's a Pan African, you know, scholar and revolutionary. My mom, you know, was in the co like communist like organization in Jamaica. I wasn't like a total like dunce in terms of like black consciousness, but I'm not American. I didn't grow up in America. And the understanding of racism specifically with like the police state is something that black people who are of a certain privilege that come from majority black countries do not understand how Mm, I like talk with my hands how much the police state and, and, and prison and that kind of stuff penetrates like all life here uh, in the U.S. And so I really thought that the only, I'm like, I'm laughing at myself because I was so ignorant. I really thought that only if you were poor or if you were, you know, maybe like selling drugs that you would get arrested. And, and when I, and so when I got arrested that night, you know, for a fucking ticket for that, I couldn't pay because I was broke, a broke filmmaker in my twenties. I think it was my late twenties. Um, when they took me to the station, I then thought that, Oh, if I, you know, if I plead, I'm a girl, like they'll listen to me. And I, of course at that time, I also did not know that they don't give a fuck if you're a black woman. Cause I also thought, oh, well, maybe it's only black men because so much of the, you know, so much of like, even now, so much of, of what we hear in the news when it comes to like police brutality or any sort of racial violence, it is mostly focused on the male experience. I mean, I do not think there's an accident that Breonna Taylor, you, you know, it's like no justice and like, you know, except for this year, there've been tons of other black women who have died and been assaulted by police that we don't know names of, right? I know names and, of them because I've worked with their mothers, you know, with Kimberly Crenshaw, so I know names. But yes, the press does, Black women, the violence done against Black women is not... Largely erased. And you, so you know because you work, but if you're even, even other Black women I know who would find themselves conscious still because so much of racial so much of racialized racialized violence is focused on the male black men's experience i mean that's the reason why alice uh why tony morrison is so beloved by all of us because she is centering our experience anyway the point being i'm in the i get arrested and i start being like oh my god like you know i i'm like talking to make sure they can hear that i have this certain accent i'm like you know, I'm, I'm also being like, I have anxiety because I'm thinking, oh, maybe they'll take, maybe they'll feel sorry for me because I'm so traumatized. But they did not give a fuck. They were like, they were like, you better not tell the judge because they were sending me to the other jail. I forget his jail or prison, like downtown. They're like, if you tell them you're having an anxiety attack, you will end up somewhere worse. And now, you know, like many, many years later, when I, un with so much more of a profound understanding of white supremacy, of anti-blackness, of mis noir, like we're not seen as black women as humans. Like we're non-humans. 
Like the idea of even being a woman is something that is very much ingrained in white supremacy, the binary of gender of man and woman. White women get to be women. That is what being a woman is based off of. And and actually everybody's womanhood is based off of reject. It's like sort of based off of like us. Like once you're, the further away you are from being a black woman, whether it's in color, skin color, whether it's in, you know, uh, you know, phenotype or whatever, like the further away you get from that, the more you get to be a woman, a human woman. Anyway, so that was just, that. that's what I think of when you said that, because for me, there, there was a time when I was also under the disillusion that there was something that I could do or say that would have me be exempt from racism in that way. Yeah, I definitely was grew up with that. And I remember with my first husband, because I hadn't experienced racism yet that or I hadn't had my nigga wake up yet. I didn't even have much empathy or compassion for the struggles he was bringing home to me every day. I think about that as well. My first boyfriend who is from Chicago, I remember, and again, remember, I did not grow up in the U.S. So when he would say things to me, like, I think it was like he turned 22 and he was like, yeah, I'm so th-. either he turned 21 or 22 something. He's like, I'm so thankful to reach 21. I looked at him like, you are so crazy. Like what? And, and I'm, I'm upping my accent to kind of like impress the to dramatize it. But I was just like, what is wrong with you? Like, of course you're going to live to 21. Like, why are you trying to pretend that you're, you're somebody poor? Like you did Jack and Jill, you're from Chicago, like you're middle-class. And I, I, I literally did not have the capacity to understand emotionally the weight of, of racism in that way for his experience. And I am still working through forgiving myself for participating and being complicit in allowing some of my, many of my white friends to say and do stupid ass shit, you know? And I, and I don't mean stupid shit like them saying, Oh, I don't like this person because they're black. I don't mean that kind of obvious stuff. I mean the liberal white person, the quote unquote progressive white person who says things and I did not ever speak up because I didn't know any better. I mean the, white friend who loves black music and who loves ethnic girls and who dates the black girls, but you know, and, and, and like enjoys feeling like they're special because they know black culture. These are things that I like now, it started around 2016. That's when I had my nigga wake up moment where I was just like, I, ha- I broke up with several a white friend. And what was the breakup for you about? <clears throat> Um, not being heard because like, as I'm saying that, like, I was like, Oh, how do I say this without getting into the details to reveal? I don't want to reveal who I broke up with, but honestly, black women are so fucking generous. It wasn't even the thing specifically that they said. It was the fact that I said, Hey, this thing that you did, this thing that you said or did not say hurt me. And then the resistance to that. And then me being like, okay, let me be generous again and explain to you why and how this hurt and then realizing like it was really a uh i had a split i literally had a like a sort of psychic split when i was like oh shit you white friend who says that i'm your best friend you other white friend who said that i'm also your best friend or close friend and i know you guys love me and literally you're denying 
what I'm telling you is hurtful. You're dismissing me. You're going textbook by textbook of white fragility and defensiveness. I, 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 I literally was like, I mean, I, I, you know, I was like, fuck all of this. I can't. And that's for me, like, so I've always had black female friends, but for me that year is where it was also when I was making solace and I was um, trying to finish and you can identify with this Tanya. I literally was trying to finish this film that I had done so much fucking work on in the most brilliant way, like funded it on my own, produced it, you know, mostly by myself. And I just needed a little bit more money. And I was watching my cohorts who are white uh, or non-black get money for stuff about black films where I was like having difficulty, like funding this film that I thought was quite brilliant. Like who's watched a film about a black girl dealing with an eating disorder? Like nobody, like, why am I not getting money? So it was like on a, on a professional level, I was having this sort of awakening of just like the, the liberalism of, of uh, independent film world. And then on a personal level, so it was like structural career wise. And then on a personal level, having this, this, this experience of just like, wow, y'all can't help yes. yourself. So I turned to black women and again, it's like, I turned to black women artistically. So I started, I started being in conversation with other black female filmmakers who knew who were more decolonized in their filmmaking practice than I was at the time. I started, I, I was in therapy and I switched eventually to having a black, a dark skinned black female therapist because I needed to have all of those intersections in order to feel like I could heal. And it just kind of expanded from there where I was just like, Oh no, part of my, part of the way that I need to heal this thing that just happened to me is I need to be with black women. Yeah. That decolonizing of the mind. I feel like mine is in a constant state and my early therapy experiences, I think were just all traumatizations because it took time for me to actually hire experts to educate me about the fact that it is known in the therapeutic system that white therapists um, empathize with identical behaviors in white people that they will pathologize in black people. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. That decolonization is an everyday thing for me. No one can see you, Frankie. I, I believe you identify as, as a uh, black or of color, but to look at you, nobody would know. Uh, so I think probably your experience has probably been a little different. No, I would. Frankie looks black. No, I think Frankie could get away with being. Uh, she could be maybe she could be Middle Eastern. She could be Balinese. She could be. Oh, I can, I can see that too. She but. could be Brazilian. I don't know, Frankie. We don't let us talk for you. So, <laughs> so, um, in my earlier years, that was an issue, a big issue, and that was a big part of why I didn't have black friends growing up. I've never had black friends. I was mostly um, targeted um, in my black community. They did not like me um, based on the way I looked. Um, and, you know, I'm older now, so things have, there's some gravity happening. But when I was younger, I looked a little bit different. I looked a lot different, actually. And um, uh, that, that was not, it did not work to my advantage in the, in the black community. When I moved out of the black community, when I was moved into the different schools, into the all white schools, they were able to, um, allow me in 
for that reason, because I wasn't quite black in there that I could be something else. They had just decided it. And it was really just perception. You know, some black people said, yeah, she's black. And some people like, she ain't black. And um, so that, that was, uh, that was hard. That was hard um, because these were my people who had rejected me. And then when I moved into the white community, I was, it was really like, I was like a, a sort of, like this pet, I had to behave a very specific way in order to be fed, in order to be petted, to be cared for, to be seen. And I was locked away when they were tired of me. And that's been my experience throughout growing up is, um, you know, on a pedestal, oh, look, until something more interesting comes along. And then we don't really care that it's dusty or that it's like a plant and it dries out. Nobody cares. Um, and, uh, so I, I don't, I don't have that. Um, I've never felt, uh, that sense of community. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience with black women specifically has been very, um, uh, what is the word? It's been very oppositional. I've been seen as a threat and I've been treated like one, um, you know, like a pest, like you have to get it out. Um, even now, sometimes when I go into, you know, I just went to Trader Joe's and, you know, a, a black woman just said out loud, oh my goodness. Like all I did was walk from my car into this store. You know, I was in, I had an experience where I was um, doing a, you know, a, being part of a fundraiser at a school. I'd made these bouquets. I have a bit of a, you know, like this sort of bohemian little bit of flair to me. I don't speak. You know, I wasn't anyway, I don't, I don't, um, I have a, a way of speaking that some people would say is like a sellout or, a, um, you know, it's not authentically black. It's not you white people say to me, you're not really black. Um, so like how, how that is processed from, you know, being very young, uh, you know, four, five, seven, eight, you know, how that's processed to growing up as an adult and, you know, being called a nigger um, and as a child as well. But um, all of that becomes like a, like, how do I move through the world and just be safe? Like, how do I identify where it's safe for me to be and how do I need to be so that I'm not harmed? So my experience is like taking this and using it as to my advantage. Like, okay, they think I'm a chameleon. I will be one. I will figure out how and where I am safe, how to be in the world and who's okay with me. You know, who's willing to be an ally, even if it means they're going to say really stupid shit. You know, the white people say lots of really stupid shit. And I know that I just, you know, up until the last recent couple of years where I've just like, I, I can't, I guess it was starting in 2016. I, I can't unsee this. I cannot not see this. I have to, now it's impacting my children. Now I have to have a conversation with my, uh, I don't know how old he was, maybe six or seven, seven year old about the N word because someone just called him that. Like now I have to tell him 
now I have to, you know, and I have to find a way to frame it in terms of, you know, kindness. Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins. Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with colleagues Chaiko Omawali, filmmaker of Solace, and singer-songwriter Frankie Cox. Do come back for part two of You Can't Say That. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.